Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club of California. Thank you, Commonwealth Club, for having me here. I'm honored to be here and delighted to speak with Richard Kallenberg to discuss his latest book, Excluded, How Snob Zoning, NIMBYism, and Class Bias Build the Walls We Don't See. It's an important book that comes at an important time, as Ken said, for the country and for California. Last year closed with just 16% of median income earners being able to afford a house in the community where they live, according to the real estate website Redfin. And according to Zillow, rents across the country have skyrocketed 60% since 2015. But of course, sitting here in San Francisco, I don't need to tell anyone how bad our housing crisis has become. We all live it. As Ken said, you know, we have some of the highest home prices and rents in the country and some of the highest rates of homelessness. Those two crises are interconnected. Housing affordability, or should I say the lack thereof, used to be the purview of just the nation's poor or exclusive to high-cost coastal cities. But we've seen that housing affordability crisis spread across the country and indeed to middle and upper-middle income classes. But how do we get here? Well, that's something that Richard unpacks in his book, beginning with some of the structural issues that drive home unaffordability, namely exclusionary zoning. And again, it's even more salient that we're talking about this here in the Bay Area, which, of course, is the birthplace of single-family zoning and none other than True Blue, liberal Berkeley, which was the first county in the nation to adopt single-family zoning in 1916. But it didn't stay there. It spread across the country. And according to the New York Times, 75% of the residential land in major metropolitan areas is reserved exclusively for single-family homes. So you may have heard about some of the ways that that has led to racial segregation in housing, but Richard focused specifically on class. So without further ado, I want to get into it. Now, you didn't start out in urban planning. So how did a nationally recognized expert in education come to write about zoning, of all things? Yeah, and I feel some insecurity about that. I, I'm an education person, essentially. Uh, but I wrote a book about housing because housing policy is education policy. You know, one of the granddaddies of education research is something called the Coleman Report, which was part of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And Coleman was trying to figure out, you know, what predicts academic achievement and what can we do to equalize the opportunities across the country. And he assumed that it was going to be all about spending. And instead, he found that the biggest predictor of academic achievement is the socioeconomic status of the family that a child comes from. And the second biggest predictor is the socioeconomic status of the child's classmates, that low-income students can do quite well if given the right environment. But what we do in this country, for the most part, is send low-income students to schools with lots of other low-income students. And so for 25 years, I wrote about a number of educational avenues for improving that situation. And so I talked a lot about magnet schools and charter schools and schools of choice within the public system to try to overcome residential segregation. But I just kept butting up against the fact that about three quarters of American kids go to neighborhood public schools. So if you want to give genuine equal opportunity to kids, you have to do something about housing. And then Back in 2010, uh, I was involved in publishing a study which really focused this for me even more intensely. 
So I live in Montgomery County, Maryland, right outside of Washington, D.C., which is a diverse community. It's got rich sections. It's got poor sections. And there was a study that looked at two interventions for educational opportunity for low-income students. One was to spend about $2,000 extra per pupil in the higher poverty schools. They invested in good things like reduced class size in the early grades and better professional development for teachers. The other intervention is a housing intervention. And they said uh, they have inclusionary zoning. And I know this is a sophisticated audience, so you all know how that works, that when a builder develops a certain number of units, he or she sets aside a percentage of those units for low-income and moderate-income families. So you had basically random assignment of students to these public housing units. Some ended up being in the rich area. Some ended up being the poor area. So you had the test. What mattered more? Spending $2,000 extra per pupil or giving low-income students a chance to live in middle-class neighborhoods? And the results over time were unmistakable. Far more effective to give low-income students that chance to live in economically mixed neighborhoods or, or more affluent neighborhoods and to attend those schools. So I guess I'm a slow learner. It took me 25 years, but finally I had to, uh, to get at kind of the source of the problem, which is that we've socially engineered economic and racial segregation in this country through our zoning laws. So people think of it as kind of it just happens because of the market. That's really not true. It's been planned very, very carefully. For some folks who may have less fluency exactly in what we mean by exclusionary zoning, we're not just talking about single-family zoning. There's other things at play. Can you just give us a little bit of a primer on what other types of factors might go into what makes housing exclusionary? Exclusive communities have a whole host of tools in their toolkit to basically keep people of modest means out of their communities. Single-family only Zoning is, is kind of the most blatant example. It's widely used. So these are bans on any kind of multifamily housing. But in addition, there are a whole set of other ideas. So some communities will say that single family home has to sit on a lot of a minimum size or the homes have to be a minimum size. Or if they do allow some multifamily housing in the community, they may say, well, this housing needs to have expensive brick siding rather than any other kind of siding that might make it more affordable for people. There are you know, off-street parking requirements that drive up the cost of homes. There are bans on what's known as manufactured housing. So this is housing that's made less expensively off-site and brought into a, a community. And so all of those things can be used. And I'm just scratching the surface. There are lots of things that can be done, but there's research on different types of communities, the number of regulations they have, and the resulting segregation by economic status and race that is produced by those different sets of rules. Yeah. And, you know, we've heard a lot about racial segregation in housing and schools. Why did you decide to focus specifically on class? Well, some of you may have read Richard Rothstein's book, The Color of Law, which I did think did a brilliant job of outlining the terrible racial social engineering that's gone on in this country, mostly in the 20th century. And I give him a lot of credit for that. But I think I'm trying to update that in essence, because people realize that redlining is now illegal. We used to have racially restrictive covenants where black people could not buy in white neighborhoods. Those were declared illegal in 1917. And so people would naturally say, 
Those were terrible laws. Thank goodness we got rid of them. Thank goodness we passed the Fair Housing Act. But not recognize that today, not part of a distant, disgraceful past, today we have this economic discrimination that's blatant and has very clear effects on both race and class. And so since the Fair Housing Act was passed, we've seen some progress. There's been a 30% decline in black-white segregation since 1970. There's still too much racial segregation, but at least we're headed in the right direction. But Sean Reardon at Stanford has found that in terms of income segregation, we're moving in precisely the opposite direction, that income segregation essentially doubled between 1970 and today. And so I think that it's important to kind of update Rothstein's work, talk about the latest trends, but also make sure that we're not letting people off the hook because there are a lot of affluent white liberals who would say, I'd be horrified by a law or even by a practice that was exclusionary of black people. I don't think they're lying. I think they genuinely, you know, some would even celebrate the fact that black doctor is moving into their community. I think they're being ingenuine in their in their view, but they don't realize that at the same time, there are all these hosts of laws that are making sure that working class people of any race, but disproportionately working class black and Hispanic people are being shut out. And so that's part of why I emphasize class. You talked about the Fair Housing Act of 1968. Before we move on from that, I just wanted to talk about that a little bit more because you describe it as a very powerful law, not just for helping to reduce residential segregation, racial segregation in housing, but also for the way that it sort of shifted the culture and expectations around what should be allowed in housing. Can you talk a little bit about the impact of that law, but also its limitations? Well, there's always a question of whether culture comes before the law or changes in the law results in changes in culture. And I think both are going on with the Fair Housing Act. But before the Fair Housing Act was passed, there were majorities of white people who said it's perfectly fine to discriminate based on race and to exclude black people from white communities. The polling suggests that's no longer true. We've made some progress there. So the Fair Housing Act not only has some teeth in it that makes it illegal to discriminate against black people or people of color or you know, discriminate based on race in any regard, but it also helped change the culture and make it shameful for someone to discriminate based on race. And we don't have that same feeling about class. In fact, if a community is described as exclusive, you know, in a magazine, that's a positive thing. You know, oh, this is a very wealthy, exclusive community. And I guess if if there's one takeaway from the book that I hope people will have, it's that exclusionary zoning is not just bad policy, and I'm sure we'll get into it. You know, it's bad for the environment. It's bad for affordability. Uh, On a whole host of issues, it's bad policy. But I also think it's wrong. I think it's wrong to say that some of our fellow citizens are so degraded that we don't want people like that living in our communities. I think it should be almost as shameful to say we don't want any working class people in this community as it is to say we don't want any black or Hispanic people in the community. Yeah. I'm thinking about some of the fights that we've had over teacher housing here in the Bay Area, which have been 
brutal um, to watch, saying that it's okay to spend time with our kids every day in school, but it's not okay to be our neighbors. You know, you do something in your book that I haven't seen a lot of other authors tackle, which is just the proliferation of exclusionary zoning rules that came about during the 1970s. And it happened all across the country. And, you know, in some ways it was a response to the Fair Housing Act and desegregation in housing, but it wasn't just that. Uh, There was also economic factors at play. And so I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about why the 1970s was such a turning point financially for so many homeowners and also the policies that they came to support. Right. So there are a couple things going on. One is you do see, I think race is part of the story, you see two big upticks in the use of exclusionary zoning in the United States. The first is right after the U.S. Supreme Court struck down those racial zoning laws in 1917, communities quickly shifted to single-family exclusive zoning and other, other methods to essentially try to keep black people out. And then after the Fair Housing Act made it illegal to discriminate based on race, you saw communities double down on exclusionary zoning, knowing that that would have the, the effect of excluding most, not all, but most black families, given the economic distribution within the black community at that time. But part of it is, is financial. And so increasingly, the home became the primary asset for most American families. And so they were nervous. They became increasingly nervous when you haven't diversified your, your economic portfolio and you're putting so much onto one particular asset, you're scared to death about any changes in the community that could hurt the, the value of that asset. And so as we saw that dynamic change, and that's in part because of you know, the, the laws that we have in this country to make it provide an incentive for people to focus most of their, their assets on, on housing. You know, for example, the, the way in which capital gains on your home, your primary home, are treated very favorably, more favorably than if you were to invest in stock. Those kind of things have caused people to double down on really making sure that they invest to the maximum amount in their home. And then that, that led to the nervousness around zoning. One of the things that you talk about is economic zoning. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, it's, it's housing, but it's also kind of municipalities trying to get the best tax base for their city coffers. How does that all factor into what gets approved and the housing shortage that we see today? So as a person who focused on education, I, I wanted to talk to some developers to kind of get a sense of how plans get approved. And they told me, you know, uh, those of you in the room who do this work will, will know it well, that when you have a proposal, you essentially have to convince the town council or other authorities that it's going to be economically beneficial to the town. And by that, they mean that there will be more tax revenue coming in than the people who live there will consume in services. And so that's why you'll see a lot of communities say, we're going to allow multifamily housing, but we're going to limit the number of bedrooms in the units because the last thing they want is families with kids. Kids 
require schools, and that requires you to tax. And so that's part of the exclusion going on. And if you're bringing in wealthier people who are going to bring in more tax revenue and, and have fewer services, that's kind of the, the ideal, which is a terrible way to run a, a set of local governments because you know, it drives inequity. But that's the system that we have. And I'll just end by saying this, you know, it doesn't have to be this way. There are other countries, including Japan, that that do not have every little local community making the rules on who gets to live here. And they have much less segregation, economic segregation, and more affordable housing as well there. What's the counter argument for a more economically diverse community? The counter-argument is that some people are worried that if their kids are exposed to students who come from more modest means, that that will somehow hurt their academic achievement. There's very little evidence of that. When you have high concentrations of poverty, you know, 75% of students low income or more, then you can run into some of those troubles. But that's one of the arguments that are advanced People will talk about, we don't want our schools to be overcrowded. We don't want multifamily housing because that'll put more pressure on the schools. I always have a little trouble with that argument. Sorry, I know I'm supposed to be making the opposition's arguments, but um, communities turn over over time. Old people die and new families come in and they bring kids with them. And no one says to someone in a single-family home, sorry, the schools are full. You've got kids. You're not going to be allowed here. I mean, we don't have that, that sort of attitude. So I think the school's argument is, is not a particularly strong one. And then the, probably the most popular argument is it's going to change the character of the neighborhood. And I think a lot about that word character. And I think there are reasonable limits that one can place. I mean, no one wants, you know, a skyscraper in the middle of a community that had been all single family homes. But what I love is the movement uh, called Neighbors for More Neighbors, which says the character of the neighborhood is the people in the community, what the rules of the community say about those people. I testified before Congress a, a couple of years ago, and the chair of the committee, he'd been on the zoning committee and Kansas City. And he said, you learn a lot about human nature at these zoning meetings because you do see the character of people come out. So I have lots of concerns about the arguments that are used on the other side. Having said that, scale matters. And so if you have enormous amounts of development in a community, there could be impact. So I'm not an extremist on this, but I certainly think there's a lot more room for, for missing middle housing, for, you know, taking, as you have in California, at least on paper, saying that you can subdivide lots and have two, essentially up to four units on what had been a single family zone, single family only lot. So I think those are important things for communities to do. And then more development near, near transit makes a lot of sense. That's kind of where the balance needs to be struck, I think. You write a lot about how opposition to housing is a nonpartisan issue. Uh, it comes from the right, it comes from the left. And I mentioned earlier Berkeley, you know, left of the left. It was the first in the country to enact single-family zoning. And it's not an outlier. So if race was the only 
driving factor behind exclusionary zoning. We would expect to see more exclusionary zoning in places where racial intolerance is the highest, but in fact, we don't. So I'm sure uh, everyone in this audience could probably answer this question, but I'll have you do it. Where do we see the most restrictive zoning and, and why is that? Well, Jenny Schutz at the Brookings Institution has reviewed all the research and there are lots of different methodologies that are used and they consistently find that the most exclusionary, the worst forms of exclusionary zoning are on the coast. They're in politically liberal areas. And even within states like California, there's one study that found the more politically liberal the community, the higher the rate of uh, exclusionary zoning. Now, I think there's a benign explanation for this and then a less benign explanation. Uh, the benign explanation is that liberals, and I, you know, I'm, I consider myself left of center, liberals are concerned about democracy and they're concerned about the environment. And so environmental laws are put in place to, to try to provide those protections. And we want to make sure that decisions affecting a community, are ad that there's adequate input from people. The problem is that those things have been weaponized in the case of housing, where well-intentioned laws are used to really exclude in very nefarious ways. But that would be the, the benign explanation. The less benign explanation is that those of us on the left have a problem. If the cardinal sin of the right is racism, as Fareed Zakaria said, the cardinal sin of the left is elitism. And, and there's social science research to back this up. So there was experimental research that asked people with different levels of education their attitudes towards other people. And as one would hope and expect, people with higher levels of education had more racial sensitivity. They were less likely to, to be racist. Unfortunately, coupled with that was the finding that people with more education also had quite negative feelings towards those with less education. And I think we see that in some of our politics, some of the rhetoric around Trump supporters. And I think we definitely see it in, in the exclusionary zoning laws. One of the reasons Hillary Clinton's deplorable statement garnered so much attention, I just wanted to point out one extraordinary statistic that you highlight in the book, which is the so-called regulatory tax which is how much government regulation increases the price of housing. And one study that you highlight says that it contributed more than half of the cost of home prices in San Francisco and nearly half in San Jose. So that a million dollar home in San Francisco would have cost a little more than $650,000 without those taxes, which is just amazing. And can I say one thing about that? Yeah. I mean, the, so I cite a lot of conservative economists in my book. And that's one of the exciting things about this issue is that conservatives have a whole set of reasons. This is, you know, this is overregulation. People are not able to do on their land what, as someone with property rights, ought to be able to do, uh, that it's inefficient economically. And I agree with all of those things. Uh, but it's, it's coming at this issue from a very different angle. And that's exciting, I think, uh, in terms of the politics of this issue, that liberals and conservatives can come together from very different directions and end up with the same policy conclusion. I want to jump back, though, to the elitism that you're talking about. And this is such a prevailing American narrative, right, that we live in a meritocracy. And so it's very easy to see poverty as a personal failing rather than a societal one. 
So how does this meritocratic elitism influence housing policy? Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's why we see the winners in the meritocracy, those who are highly educated, have this interesting set of views on race and class. So appropriately, meritocrats see race, racism as something negative, in part because it, it interferes with meritocracy, making sure that the right person is getting the right job. So racism hurts meritocracy. Classism is, and elitism is kind of an outgrowth of meritocracy. And, and a number of people, Michael Sandel and others have written about this. Uh, you know, on the one hand, I don't have an alternative to meritocracy. I mean, I don't want nepotism. I don't want corruption. So I, I, I think we do need a set of meritocratic rules if they're genuinely applied. So you look at the distance someone has traveled to get where they are, not just where they end up. But there's a hubris that comes out of meritocracy that's very damaging. And that is to suggest that because I've won, I deserve more. And people who, who fail or are less successful in the meritocracy uh, have only themselves to blame. So I think that's, that's the downside. It's the classic bootstraps mythology, right? That we can just all pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and we're all equals here, uh, which is something that I think you experience uh, acutely in the Bay Area, just in the way that privilege is, is often downplayed, which is, I guess, just an interesting aside. But, you know, you were talking about the economic basis to dismantle zoning. Um, and one of the arguments that I hear very frequently in the Bay Area and across California, whether it's in response to a specific housing development or broad housing policy reform, is that you know this is just going to be a giveaway to developers. It will lead to more displacement as developers go for the lowest hanging fruit. That zoning reform is insufficient in and of itself to achieve a more equitable society. What's your response to that? Well, I don't think that zoning reform is the only thing we should be doing. I support you know, making sure that we have some government support for people who, who are struggling economically. Housing is subsidized in so many ways, including among quite wealthy people who you know, have a mortgage tax deduction that they take. But at the same time, I do think there's a role for government to, to make sure that, that, that there are supports for those who are, are struggling. So I'll agree with part of it. The issue of displacement and gentrification is very, very complicated. I have a whole section in the book on this. And I'm glad you used the word displacement because that is the concern. Because I travel in liberal circles, I have lots of people who, who hate gentrification. Uh, well, it's more complicated than that because there's lots of research to suggest, first of all, that most of the gentrification in black communities comes from Hispanic people, not from, from non-Hispanic whites, and that the outcomes for youth are much better when some gentrification occurs so long as people are not displaced. So I feel like, and I, I know you're going to be an exception to this, but in the media, there's often this assumption that if wealthier people move into a community automatically low-income people have to move out as if there's a fixed number of spots and gentrification will always lead to massive displacement and ultimately a complete flip 
where a community will become, you know, once again, segregated because it's all wealthy and all white. That almost never happens. And to the extent that it does happen, exclusionary zoning is, is a piece of that. If you can build more, then the pressures on displacement are greatly reduced. And so, so I think it does come back to that issue. Um, having said that, I talk in the, in the book about a story that some of you may be familiar with in California, where sometimes, you know, well-intentioned, yes, in my backyard forces can be insensitive to the concerns that communities are are raising about displacement. And some of you may remember there was, I think it was here in San Francisco, there was a terrible moment when you basically had these highly educated white Yimbis yelling at community activists, you know, read the bill, read the legislation in in a very condescending way. So, So I think we have to be sensitive that there are real issues around displacement that need to be thought through. But ultimately, I think, Reducing exclusionary zoning will, will help address that issue of displacement. And you talk a little bit about how this played out in Minneapolis when it made the historic move, broke the logjam on single-family zoning, allowed duplexes and triplexes across the city, fourplexes in, in other parts of the city, and the ways in which that campaign was successful. Can you talk a little bit about how activists there came together with social justice activists and others who were supportive of affordable housing and preserving low-income tenants in place. How did that all come together and result in success for Minneapolis? Well, Minneapolis, as many of you know, it, is, it was the first place to suggest that a community where 70% of the land was set aside for single-family exclusive zoning, you know, they, they'd allowed duplexes and triplexes everywhere. There's some legal issues that have come up recently, so they're, they're still ironing that out. But in terms of the politics, they were highly successful, in part because the group Neighbors for More Neighbors there went out and, and made a compelling case that everyone should be involved in making decisions about the future of housing in the community. So there's a lot of research, including research from Massachusetts, which shows who comes to zoning committee meetings. And it's very clear that it's, it tends to be wealthy, white, male homeowners who are opposed to change. And Minneapolis tried to alter that dynamic and bring people out who, who are harmed by exclusionary zoning, make the victims of that, these policies visible to the larger community. And so people who had never attended meetings like this, you know, they'd, they'd all wear shirts of a certain color, so they'd kind of... It wouldn't be uh, intimidating to people to come. They could kind of find their people. They reached out to a whole host of activists. Labor unions were a big piece of this. So the SEIU, who represented a lot of healthcare workers in, in Minneapolis, said the housing situation is so desperate for us that our members are having to live in the far periphery of the Minneapolis suburbs take two buses in order to get to work. They miss a connection. They could face a big penalty. And so this was making life miserable for people. So they were part of the effort. The environmental groups, you know, it was complicated because there were some who were opposed, but most recognized that exclusionary zoning results in further commutes for people, higher emissions of greenhouse gases. And so they got on on board. 
Uh, there aren't really a lot of conservatives in Minneapolis. I find the California example more exciting where some conservatives got on board, but it's all Democrats. And then there's the green, the one Green Party member. So it's tilted that way. So it's not necessarily a, a place that it could be a model for every community. But I think the, the key was getting people who had not been involved in the process, giving them some voice. And speaking of how things played out in California, California had a, a slightly different trajectory. Um, you know, California as a state eliminated single-family zoning in 2021 with passage of SB9, which you referred to earlier, which at least on paper allows folks to build up to two duplexes on lots in most places where only single-family homes were previously allowed. But that had a different experience. So how did that compare to Minneapolis? What could other folks learn from California's experience? Well, what I find exciting about California, and the same is true in Oregon, is that you would not have had the legislation pass if you hadn't had bipartisan support. So there were, you know, it was mostly Democrats. I mean, that's what you have here, is mostly Democrats. But it was mostly Democrats in the state legislature. But, but the margin of victory was provided by some rural Republicans. And I talked to some activists about this, and, and they said, no one wants to be looked down upon and excluded, whether it's by race or by class. And this was, there was a message that people who were in highly affluent, exclusive communities that tended to, to be politically liberal were looking down on people of lesser means, some of whom were white, as well as uh, people of color. And so that was a piece of it. And then uh, some other activists said, you know, in politics, motives are mixed. And, and they said, well, this was a way to kind of stick it to those liberal, what they would call liberal elitists. So the people who say they care about the environment have the solar panels on the house, drive the Tesla, and then are backing these policies that are terrible for the environment by not allowing housing where people want to live and near their work. So there was a mix of motives there. But for decades, almost all the research I've done has come back to a moment in 1968 when Bobby Kennedy brought together working class people of different races. It's kind of a dream for a lot of us. And this, you know, in a, in a very modified version, you saw glimpses of that in, in California and in Oregon, where the, that bipartisan coalition came together of essentially people who had less against those who had more. Of course, we still see a lot of entrenched elitism across the state. I'm just going to pull in an audience question here because it's sort of relevant to what we're talking about. So the city of Huntington Beach, California, filed a lawsuit and won the case against their housing element, which mandated affordable housing. And I know that you may not be totally familiar with all the particulars, but Huntington Beach, very exclusive community. What can be done to combat this persistent nimbyism that we still see in California, even though we have seen such movement across the state to break down some of these barriers? Well, I would say there are two strategies. One is to try to convince exclusive communities that their practices are having a damaging effect on their community. Uh, and so, you know, if people complain that, oh, the restaurants are so slow because there's, you know, there's not enough staff or, or if they're worried about their kids getting a good education, 
then kids in exclusive communities are, they're missing out on uh, something very, very important in developing your 21st century workforce skills, which is being able to get along with people of different backgrounds. The number one reason people are fired is not because they're competent. It's because they can't get along with others, with coworkers. And a piece of that has to do with racial and class differences. People, I'm sure, are rolling their eyes at this argument of self-interest for the communities. But we have seen in a number of liberal communities changes in Montgomery County, Maryland, in, uh, in Arlington, Virginia. There are lots of places that are enacting some reforms. And part of the argument is related to self-interest and to conscience. That's one strategy. The other strategy is to really get aggressive with laws that leave very few options for communities like you're mentioning. And so in the book, I talk about the idea of an economic fair housing act. And this proposal could be a federal proposal. California could pass a state law, a state economic fair housing act. And it would provide plaintiffs, those who are hurt by exclusionary zoning, a right to sue uh, in court to challenge exclusionary laws that cannot be justified. So this is drawing on civil rights law where there's this principle that if there's a called a disparate impact, so a, a negative impact statistically on a, on a population, so now it would be people of color, that you could bring a lawsuit and the burden would shift to the municipality to have to justify well, this is the only way we can accomplish our legitimate goals is to engage in these types of exclusionary zoning practices. There's some language in there that, that's tough. It has to be necessary. The exclusionary zoning practice has to be necessary to accomplish a legitimate end. So I think that would make a big difference in terms of bringing about reform. But you need a coalition of working people to get that type of legislation passed. And Emanuel Cleaver, a uh, congressman, he was the one I was referring to earlier who was at the zoning hearing and was hearing the congressional testimony. He's, he's very interested in uh, introducing something like this at the federal level. There's been attempts at doing this before, and you write a little bit about this in your book, other Supreme Court cases, including one in San Jose, the Valtierra case, where this argument has been put forward before why do you think those arguments failed in the past? And what would enable that? I mean, obviously, a, a federal law would, would make that, you know, kind of discrimination illegal. But just thinking about the, the sort of justification for those exclusionary practices in the past, how do you think we could overcome the dissent? For those of you who are not familiar, you know, the Valtieri case and others, there's a long line of cases which say that under the Constitution... If you discriminate based on race, you have to have a very, very powerful justification. It's very, very hard to do that. Discrimination based on class is basically, you can easily justify it. And so the Economic Fair Housing Act would not rely on a constitutional argument. It would say, let's pass federal legislation. It will require a, a cultural change to recognize that it's wrong to discriminate against working class people. That's not going to be easy because there are these deep-seated feelings about meritocracy that are coming into play. Uh, but having said that, you know, Donald Trump has been absolutely brilliant at exploiting the 
the feelings that, that working class people have, particularly working class white people, but increasingly working class Hispanics as well, that the deck is stacked against them. And he's using it, in my view, for kind of nefarious means. But I think it's important for those of us who care about equity to harness that. You know, we're in a populist moment in this country and channel that anger against exclusionary laws that create this ecosystem. You know, George Packer from The Atlantic talks about it. Working class people know that there are certain communities where, I'm sorry, journalists and you know, professors and others all live and they all marry one another and their kids all go to school together. And working class people know they're not part of that. And so I think there's a chance in this country that we can begin to chip away at these laws that just people haven't, haven't been totally focused on. And now, be, I mean, we, I can't believe we've had this whole discussion. We haven't really talked that much about affordability. That's what's really driving change is that people just are fed up and want to see change for that reason as well. Part of the bargain of the meritocratic system in this country was that if you worked hard, got a good education, made a reasonable salary that you could afford a home and the trappings of you know, stability that comes with owning a home. Um, in many ways, a single-family home is really the symbol of middle-class success. And that bargain seems to be failing right now, as you said, because of affordability. Yeah, and it's failing for people who very much expected the system to work in their favor. So young people who went to college, took on debt, they did what society asked of them and are still coming up short. That's unsustainable at the end of the day. I mean, you all, I'm sure, are familiar with this statistic that California is now you know, losing people. You've got great, you know, some of the most dynamic uh, employers who are offering fabulous opportunities, having trouble recruiting the best people because it's become just unsustainably unaffordable. And speaking of politics and populism, we have a question from the audience. So you stated that housing segregation is improving, as is the culture around it. But that feels very disparate depending on the state and complicated by recent political divisiveness and populism. Do you think that trend will continue? I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know. I probably should emphasize again, we're a highly segregated country by race. The levels are, are much higher than in many other countries. But it is headed in the right direction. I mean, Walter Mondale, who was you know, one of the lead sponsors of the Fair Housing Act, talked about all these beautiful communities, uh, you know, oftentimes inner ring suburbs, where you have a rich variety of people of different races. And he calls those communities kind of the children of the Fair Housing Act. Progress that people might, you know, looking from the vantage point of the 1950s, would have found remarkable. Part of that is the demographic change in the country. But we used to have huge numbers of communities that were more than 80% white. That's very rare now. And so we have become more multicultural. But if the question is, you know, don't we still have a lot of racial segregation? I'll completely agree but we're headed in the right direction. You know, when Donald Trump was elected president and now as he's leading in some of the polls to beat Biden, it sounds tone deaf to say that we're making progress on race. I would just say to that that I think we overinterpret uh, presidential victories. 
So we overinterpret, you know, a lot of people overinterpreted Obama's election, saying, oh my gosh, this is a, we're now making so much progress on race. Look, we've elected a black president. It was progress, but it was naive to think that that, that was symbolic of erasing lots of deep history of, of racism. By the same token, I think that we overinterpret Trump's popularity. I think, I think there's good evidence that he wins despite his racism, not because of it, with a majority of, of Americans. But, you know, certainly thinking about his strain of populism, as you talked about earlier, um, this is another audience question which kind of hits at this, which is just how politically dangerous is the elite prejudice against lower-income citizens and, quote, meritocratic hubris? Oh, it's, enorm- it's a huge problem. I mean, it's the central problem, I think, for, for Democrats. I mean, you, there are all these political analysts who've spent more time than I have trying to understand voters. Most of the research suggests it's, it's not policy positions that drive people. It's fears, and it's a sense of whose side are you on. And so when Donald Trump said, coal miners, you know, we're going to bring your jobs back, that was a promise he could never keep. But it signaled that he understood what they were going through and cared. And the fact that instead we'd have Democratic politicians saying that these millions of Americans, they're not just acting deplorable. They are deplorables. You're defined by your your worst day, your worst instincts. That defines you entirely. That's hugely problematic for it just feeds and confirms the worst fears that people have about elitist Democrats. Kind of shift a little bit here, but what's one significant or major correction that Bay Area counties, or I'll extend this to all of California, can implement to dismantle or reduce exclusionary zoning? And I think the the audience member here is looking for a specific policy, for example, in an affluent or liberal county and liberal county. Oh, oh, so a a local effort to make change. Um, I mean, I think... What we've seen in communities across the country are efforts to allow more multifamily housing. So, for example, in Portland, Oregon, you had the state coming in and saying you need to do certain things. And Portland upped the ante and went further. So I think that's that type of change. Uh, So, for example, in Arlington, Virginia, they now allow up to eight units on some of the properties that had been one unit. Now, they have some caps built into that that make it less effective than than that sounds. But I think that communities can lead and say, uh, particularly liberal communities, you know, look at the the racial history of where zoning came from, uh, you know, where some of these zoning laws came from, where exclusionary zoning comes from, and let's do our own part to allow more multifamily housing. This kind of ties into another audience question, which is by focusing on class and economics exclusively and leaving race out, aren't you missing that black people particularly are more likely to be low income because of racism? Mm, absolutely. No. Chapter three, I think it is, 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 is all about uh, how these exclusionary zoning laws particularly hurt black people. There are two things going on. So the class-based discrimination hurts you know, people across the board. But because of the legacy of all the stuff Richard Rothstein wrote about, the redlining 
the racially restrictive covenants. We robbed black people of generations of black people of wealth, the ability to build wealth in the same way that white people could. And the lack of wealth means that the economically exclusionary zoning laws on average hurt black people much more acutely than they do white people. So I'm sorry if I left the impression that race wasn't part of this. It's, it's a huge part of it. It's just that the laws themselves are facially neutral on race, economically discriminatory. And to my mind, the fact that they're economically discriminatory is bad enough. The fact that it disproportionately benefits or, or hurts black people makes it particularly bad. I also want to just point out that you also highlight that even when uh, people of color are able to purchase a single-family home, for example, they're often still experiencing higher rates of poverty in their neighborhoods than less affluent white people, who, yes. so, which is just um, an interesting uh, statistic. Oh, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a horrifying statistic that middle-income black people live in neighborhoods with higher poverty rates on average than poor whites. And that's the function of, of race and of an overlay of racial discrimination from the past and, and current struggles with racial discrimination. Now, this is um, a little bit of a shift, but we've seen a lot of success in California with granny units. These are accessory dwelling units or backyard cottages where we've seen... I think it was it last year, maybe in 2022, it was 10% of the housing units in California were ADUs. And we've seen a lot of energy into pushing those policies through. So our audience member is asking, should those efforts instead be redirected to more dense options? I would say both. I mean, if you look at the, the short-term results of various California you know, legislative changes, I think most people would point to the ADUs as one of the big successes. So I think we shouldn't discount that. I think it's important. But the reform with ADUs, I think, can clearly pave the way to more. This happened in Minneapolis. Before they passed their plan to legalize duplexes and triplexes throughout the community, a few years earlier, they had passed an ADU law and there was one council member who was very upset about it. And she said, these are going to become houses of prostitution. Uh, and when that didn't happen, um, uh, that, that kind of, it gave people context for some of the fear mongering about the next step for, of reform. I think it's always a, a good starting place. And then one can build on change. Now, this is a question that actually I've been thinking about a lot, which is that, you know, because home ownership is so tied to wealth in this country, there's no zoning reform, right, that we could make that would dramatically increase supply enough to have prices fall, because doing that would just be catastrophic to the economy. It's people's personal wealth. It's also the tax basis of many cities. So if we can't expect housing prices to fall dramatically, what can we expect as we're talking about trying to improve affordability? Well, it's a complex issue because one person's housing values is another person's affordability crisis. And so you want a balance. You don't want housing prices to decline the way they did during the foreclosure crisis. Um, 
so I think what we're talking about here is moderating price increases in the future. So people always say, well, how is this going to affect property values? Uh, and that's a legitimate concern. And I think it's dishonest to say reform will have no effect on your property values because the whole point is to make housing more affordable. And when you do increase supply, then those increases in prices won't be quite as dramatic. They won't be as so outsized as they had been. You know, I, I cite research in the book about if you're just sitting on your property in certain communities in California, you're making per hour far more than any um, actually working as opposed to just sitting in your house and watching your house value go up. So it's moderating the price increases as opposed to actually seeing declines in value. And even in the most extreme case, which is subsidized housing coming into a community, there's lots of research on the effect on housing prices. And one of the best ones was in Mount Laurel, New Jersey, where they, after a lawsuit, they were, for many, many years, they were able to build about 140 units in subsidized housing. Almost all the residents were black. And so if you're thinking of the white homeowners' fear about property values, this could be it. But researchers at Princeton found no decline in property values, and they increased at the same rate as neighboring communities that did not have the affordable housing. And researchers point to two things. One is scale. So it was 140 units. It wasn't 10,000 units. Secondly, they point to the basically the tastefulness of the architecture and the, the design and how it looks. And I've had people, I had a student who lives in Mount Laurel who said, you drive past the units, it's hardly noticeable, uh, the affordable units. They blend in nicely. I mean, they're, they're different, but they're, they're pleasing to the eye. And so, uh, so it, it, we don't have to build uh, public housing that is ugly and offends people's sensibilities. So th that is the worst case scenario for the fearful property owner is not just market rate housing, but subsidized housing. And even in those cases, if executed well, there's not a negative effect on property values. Well, I think that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much, Richard, for your thoughtful insights. It's hard to understate the importance of stable housing in all of our lives. It's the place where we raise our families, where we learn and grow, where we take off our masks and be our most genuine selves. And you outline uh, a beautiful vision for what housing could look like in this country that where all walks of life can share in the same schools and parks and opportunities. And I think that's one that we can all strive for. Richard's book is Excluded, How Snob Zoning, NIMBYism, and Class Bias Build the Walls We Don't See. It's out now. Thanks so much for being here. Right, thank you, Aaron. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work. Help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel program to exciting domestic and international destinations. When you're in the Bay Area, please join us for live events at our home on the waterfront. Thank you for listening and thank you for your support.